to Boston. Boston in March. I am limited to you right now. And it's tough. When I would want to be in California, the Pacific Northwest, or Australia. I haven't decided about Texas yet, but maybe one day. We are limited to our location. Time. 24 hours a day, 160 hours a week. We can't do it all. Do you recognize these limits in your life? So why is it important to embrace our limit? Why is it important to know these things? Well, the answer, quite frankly, is just it's immature not to. Okay, so I'm going to talk about what immaturity is and what maturity is. So immaturity is this. Immaturity, people who are emotionally immature, they think they can do whatever they want to do. They think they can have whatever they want to have. They have no limits on their life, at least in their mind. Physically they do, but in their mind they're like, I can do anything, I can do anything, I can do anything. And I want to do everything. And what that typically leads to is either burnout because you run yourself ragged, trying to do those things, or disappointment because life just never turns out the way that you would hope it would. So that's immaturity. Immaturity also never allows for contentment with what you do actually have. So the talents and gifts that you have, your family, your wife, your children, your job, your body, how you look, all these things. It's immature to never be content with that because this, this is what's going to happen. Eventually, a midlife crisis, that's what we call a midlife crisis is going to come where we kind of get through a good, we kind of brace ourselves through that, like, I, I, why isn't life like it should? And then we just like freak out and say, I, I got to change. And so you leave everything or you go do something crazy. I would say that's immature. Immaturity also, it feeds on comparison. We're going to talk about this more later. Because you're always thinking, oh, everybody else has got all this good stuff, but I got nothing. That's an immature way to think, right? But what is then maturity? What am I calling us to? What am I, what am I giving us vision for as a church in terms of spiritual and emotional maturity? It's this. Maturity says, hey, I have limits. I have these things that I just talked about. That's a reality. They're, they're either just good to know that I have these limits or they've been given their gift from God. So we, we recognize and embrace our limits. Maturity also realizes that living outside of your limits will lead to these bad things, to burnout, to disappointment, to the midlife crisis. It's like the grass is greener mentality, right? We're always thinking there's something more, but that's an immature thought. Maturity says, I am so happy with what I have, where I am. And then finally, maturity embraces this, just the humility in that the, the world will go on without you. Say, say your business didn't have you show up for a day or say your family, you weren't around for a little while. Say your church, you, you weren't part of the ministry. Guess what? Life would go on and maturity recognizes that and has confidence in that. So that's what immaturity is, given a vision for maturity. So how do we actually move from immaturity to maturity? How do we actually be mature people who embrace our limits. Here's how. We live a life of contentment. I'm going to bring us into three areas. One, I'm going to talk about what is contentment and why is it so hard to be content. Secondly, we're going to look at the Psalm 16 and we're going to see how this Psalm models for us or or calls us to a life of contentment. And then finally, I'm going to give a couple practicals for how you can actually walk out of here saying, I embrace my limits and I'm going to live life content more than I have been. So first of all, What is contentment? Got a definition here. Contentment is this, simply. Being fully satisfied in the things, the gifts, the relationships, and the limits that God has given you. 
So finding satisfaction in that. That's like, like drinking a drink and saying, mmm, that satisfies. I like these limits. I like the family that I have. I like the job that I have. I like where I'm at. That is contentment. So why is this so hard? I, two things. I came up with two things. I thought of two things that make contentment so stinking hard. And the first is this. I mentioned it earlier, but it's comparison. First major assault on our contentment is, is how we compare ourselves to other people, right? Every single day we're getting messages shoved in our face. This is advertising and marketing, right? You should do this. You should have this. You should have more. Look at all these other people. Oh my goodness, look at how good this person looks. You've got to be like that. That's just in our face all the time. That's the world, the marketing world that we live in. So it's so hard because it just forces us or, or encourages us to compare, right? Second place, social media is an incredibly, uh, if, if you're not careful, it can lead to a lot of comparison, right? Think about Instagram. My wife fasted from Instagram this February, and it's been so helpful for her, and she's going to continue that fast. Because this is, when I think of Instagram, this is what I think of. I think of a family that is just living in, in utter chaos in their like, living room or kitchen or whatever. All this crazy stuff is happening, like, Husband and wife are like about to go to battle, you know, so frustrated with each other. They're like, these kids are driving me crazy and you're driving me crazy. All right, gather up. Insta. (laughs) And it goes back right to chaos, right? And all we get is that glimpse of that little click, right? And that's what we think. And so then we're like, oh, my life does not look like that. It lives in chaos. But that's the reality of most of our lives. Social media can, if you're not careful, can breed comparison. Comparison is actually, I was talking with Clark about this this week. He said it this way, comparison is insanity. It's literally insane, okay? We will never be the most beautiful. We'll never be the most built. We'll never be the most successful. We'll never have the most of anything in this world, most likely. Okay, think of all of those categories. Literally, there's one person in the world that's the best at something and one person in the world that's the worst at that thing. And there's seven billion of us in between (laughs) that are either looking over here and saying, I wish I had more, or looking over here and be like, I got more than you. And that's comparison, right? I I used to swim as a workout, and and, uh, I, I remember getting in my lane, and I'm swimming along, and just what naturally happens for me is as you're breathing here on my right, all of a sudden this... Guy comes into my lane or into my view. I'm like, don't try to pass me. And I just start going up because I'm like, I'm faster than this guy. Come on. And then I finally, and then I, and then I take off and I'm like, I just beat him. Yeah. But then I start breathing to the left. And then all of a sudden there's this woman that flies by me doing the butter, butterfly stroke. Just like, <laughs> just like I'm sitting still. And, I, and I'm, at first, you know, I, I think I'm Michael Phelps looking to my right, and, and now I want to hang up my goggles, right? That's what comparison is. It's looking outside of your lanes to what's around you instead of just running your thing. So the comparison, it kills us. Second thing that, that hurts our contentment is this. There's a teacher uh, out in Bethel uh, Church, which is in California. They have a, a large music ministry and teaching ministry. And one of the pastors there, his name is Steve Backland. And he calls it this, destination disease. The destination disease. And destination disease is this. I'll be happy when I fill in the blank. I'll be content when I whatever it is. Right? I remember when I was single, 
I lived in destination disease until I got married. Right? I just, I want to be married. That's going to be so good. I got married, and it is good. <laughs> it's amazing. Except one of the lessons that I learned in my marriage, my, young, my early marriage, and I'm still learning it, is that um, most of our conflicts came from our schedule. And I would be like, what do you mean i got to run this by my wife? Of course I can do that. I scheduled my life like a single, and it led to a lot of conflict. And at those times, I was like, I wish I was single. If, if I was single, I would have been, been totally content, right? Now we're married with kids, and same thing happens. Kids are amazing. They're amazing. It's the best things ever, 90% of the time. <laughs> that 10% is when you say, life would be so much better if... We were just married again. We're, we're going on vacation this week for a couple of days. And we're taking, it's going to be just the four of us. And uh, I'm contemplating whether I should even call it vacation. Just, just to <laughs> give my, like, you know, anyway. I, kids are amazing, but we, we often can be un, not content because we're saying, if I only had this, then I would be, right? We live in destination disease. So I want to call us to say, hey, guys. Comparison, destination disease, these things are assaulting our ability to be content. And we need to understand this. There's a perfect example of a, of a woman who's living in contentment right now. So last Sunday I preached on Sabbath, and I said this thing where I said, uh, hey, if you have a spouse, partner with your spouse to give uh, y- your other spouse time away from the kids. So you watch the kids so your spouse gets away. And I, I remember sitting down, and I, I kind of was starting to, I was like grieved. I was like, what, what's going on? And I recognized that with that kind of comment, it really does isolate any single parent, right, by saying something like that. Like, that's, that's your application. Work with your spouse to get good Sabbath. How would a single parent feel about that, right? And so I sat down, and, and one of the single parents in our midst, Emily George, she has a Jude. He's uh, seven, eight, or nine, I forget. Uh, but he, amazing kid. Um, I, I, uh, He's, he's an older kid. And so she's been a, a single mom for a while now. And I just texted her. I was like, hey, Emily, I'm so sorry. I just realized I totally missed it. That was not insensitive to, to say that. And here, here's how she's replied. So I'm, I'm doing this via text. Her text back to this stopped me in my tracks. And she says this, oh, Phil, it's okay. I have a husband. And I was like, she got married? What? <laughs> and, and then I was like, no, no, she didn't get married. Okay. So no worries, I'm free by the grace of God. But not everyone is, so I appreciate your sensitivity. And I, I almost, like, I started to well up because I was like, she grasps this in a way that I don't. Jesus is her husband. Jesus fulfills that place of, uh, in, in the times that she is not married right now, Jesus is that place for her. I have a husband. And I was, I was wrecked by that. She's a woman who's embracing this Life of contentment right now. She's an example for us. So we want to be that. We want to be people who grasp and really uh, live a life full of contentment. So how do we do that? I believe we're going to now look at Psalm 16. I was, I, this has been a psalm that I've come back to probably the last six months. I've been, I just will randomly come back to it. And so as I was preparing, I was like, what's a passage that really kind of grasps this idea of contentment? And the Lord's like, Psalm 16, man, that's when you've been sitting in. And so what I recognized this week is I was just like, yeah, what is the theme of this psalm? What is kind of the driving message that David, who was the writer, was trying to get across? And I believe it's this. It says, I am content in the Lord, and he will provide all that I need. 
The major theme of this psalm, I am content in the Lord, and He will provide all that I need. This is a cool little... Okay, so remember, the Bible is the only book in the world that you get to sit down next to the author every single time you read it and have him show you what's really going on. Isn't that a cool idea? The Bible's the only book in the world that that happens. And so as I was sitting with the author of the Bible this, this week, it wasn't David, but the Holy Spirit, as I was sitting with the Holy Spirit and he was illuminating things, here's a few of the points that I felt came out. So I'm going to read it first, then I'm going to bring us into these points. Let's look at Psalm 16. It says this, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So here's some of the things I felt like just popped out from that. They were all about contentment. First, verse 2. The Lord is all that I need. I'll say it this way too. The Lord is all that you need. Emily George experienced the Lord is all that she needs. How do we live a life of contentment? Well, first, we recognize that the Lord is all that we need. Everything else in this world, just it doesn't even compare to our relationship with the Lord. Apart from Him, we have no good thing. Apart from Him, you know, we have a lot of good things, right? We have our careers and our jobs and our families and our houses and our possessions and our cell phones and our purpose and our mission in life, right? All these things are good things, but they all, apart from Him, all of those things are not good. Apart from Him, with Him, or He is the highest. He is the best of all those things. If all of these other things were gone, I could still say, Apart from you, I have no good thing. My life is content. My life is good. I have you. And you know what's so good about this? Is that the reality is that we can all say that. We all have the ability to have that be our life. Right? God is not like a pie that, that only has a certain amount. Meaning like, hey, you got a big slice and you got a little sliver. God is not a pie. He is... A spring that never ends and that everybody can taste and everybody can get full satisfaction from Him. He, he apportions an equal amount to us all. It's not like you got a little bit and you got a lot. It's like we all have the same access to the same God, the fullness of Him. And so there is nothing that, in God that won't fully satisfy us if we, don't, if, if, if we can have the ability to tap into that and understand that. That's a beautiful thing. Who else in Scripture grasps this? Paul. Paul has this amazing chapter in Philippians 3. 
where he basically, uh, you know, throws out his Jewish resume. And he's like, I was the man. I was the Jew of Jews. It would be like someone saying, you know, I went to Princeton for undergrad, Yale for master's, and Harvard for PhD. That's the kind of resume this guy had. And I was successful in all the stuff that I did. So he, he kind of lists out all these things. I had it all. But then he goes like this. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So he's saying all this stuff, my degrees, my tent business, my, my, all the things, it doesn't matter. I consider all loss compared to knowing Christ. And we all have the ability to say that and be fully content in the Lord. In verse 4, I'll just hit this quickly. He, he turns to those who are not content, right? And he says this, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. This is juxtaposed right to this, this point of like, hey, it's all about Jesus, but those who don't make it all about the Lord and, and Jesus, sorrow is what they get. If, if it's not all about Him, if He is not our full contentment, if we have any of this, if we are, are deriving our contentment from this world or for things in this world, it will lead to sorrow. That's a direct, that's right from Psalm 16. So it's just a reminder for us. Remember that. Everything else will lead to sorrow. Five and six. This is my next kind of thing that I felt like the Lord was like, okay, this is these, these verses, right? And, and you've heard them many times, and I love these verses. But this is it. My limits are good. My limits are good. I embrace my boundaries. I embrace my limits. Verse five and six says this. Lord, you have assigned to me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. How do you live a life of contentment? Well, you just picture the Lord. You know, I, 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 I like to think and, and connect the right side of your brain to this, right? Picture Thanksgiving. Picture, you know, it might have been your dad that like, my dad is like the, he carves the turkey, no one else does, right? And all of us have our, our plates and we come through and, and my dad's there. How much more you want? You want a little bit more? Okay, here we go. Slops it on, you know, keeps it going. Picture, you have assigned me my portion. You've given me my cup. God, you have given me what I have. You have made my plate full. Thank you, Lord. What are boundary lines? It's easy to think of a house and a fence, right? And the book Boundaries by Henry Cloud and, Cloud and Townsend, they talk about, that's the, that's the image that they use. It's a great book if you want to know more about boundaries and how to have healthy boundaries. But they say, man, look at your house and look at your fence. Your fence is a great thing. Enjoy the things, in, enjoy your property. Enjoy the playground that's in there for your kids. Enjoy the safety that this, this fence provides for you, right? But once we start th- saying, oh, I, uh, what about my neighbor's yard or, or house? Uh, what's over the fence? What's, what are all those good things? That's when we start violating those good boundary lines that God has given us. Boundary lines are drawn for our good and for us to be content within them. Paul, again, is a, is a beautiful example of this. Again, in the book of Philippians. So he, he's writing this from jail, right? It talks about how he's in chains. 
talks about how he had, he had been in jail, and, and he's saying, hey, my sufferings are a good thing, actually. So here, here Paul is in a, in a confined boundary space, right? He's in jail, and yet his message in that whole book is this. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. I am so content with this. Later on in, in chapter 4, he talks about whether I have a lot or little, I am so content. It doesn't matter. My life, the, the guy is like immune to circumstances. Or he's grasped or mastered the art of being content in all circumstances. Final point from this, from Psalm 16, is verse 11. I love this verse. The path of life is that we are fully content in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, it says this, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That is a good thing. That's from the Lord. Let me just give a a quick... uh, I'm about to share the gospel. Ready? Watch out. Verse 10 says this, nor will you let, it's got this little verse that kind of ends uh, verse 10. It says this, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. It's interesting that both Paul and Peter in the book of Acts reference this small little part of a verse in their defense of Jesus Christ being resurrected. Okay? So what we can get a glimpse is that David, Peter, and Paul all understood this, what, they, what David was writing as this kind of, under, of, of, that a resurrection was going to occur or did occur. Okay, And so you can call this maybe a resurrection psalm. All right, and what is the resurrection? Well, let me tell you. But first, I'm going to share the gospel right now. So we have been made by God. God created this world. He created all that we see around us. And then he created human beings. And he put us on this world in order to have a relationship with us. But also to allow us to cultivate and steward his good creation, this world. That's why God put us on this earth. And he said, hey, these are the ways, these are kind of the ways that I'd like you. He gave us those humans boundaries. This is how I want you to interact. And and if you do, this world will be thriving and beautiful. But the problem happened when humans said, you know what? We're going to do our own thing. Or we're going to go our own way. Or, you know, actually, that's not the best idea. Let's decide to go this way. And the Bible calls that decision sin. The Bible says that when we chose that, basically we, we chose to break relationship with God. We chose to say, hey, we're going to do it our way and not yours. And so what did brokenness do? Brokenness then entered into the world. And, and I think as we look around this world, I think we see a lot of brokenness. I think of brokenness in our relationships with others, right? We see divorce, murder, racism, sexism, all these th- ways that f- human beings are not interacting the way that God had originally intended at all. That is broken. I think a brokenness with ourselves. Either we're full of pride, totally overinflated about who we are, or we have total self-doubt or have self-condemnation, right? I think of the brokenness that are in our environment and in the the systems in our world. I think of all these good things that I believe God gave to us. Government, our economic systems, healthcare, all these ways to heal diseases. There's so much brokenness in it. And the, the way that we're treating our world, instead of stewarding and cultivating, it's like there's, we're sucking the resources from it for our own use. That is brokenness. But thankfully, God chose not to let it be like that. God chose to say, hey, I'm going to help out again. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insert myself into this situation. And so God sent Jesus Christ, his son, to earth. To basically be the perfect example, saying this was how it was meant to be. Jesus, when G, the way that Jesus and God interacted, that was how all humankind was supposed to interact with God. The way that Jesus lived his life in, in total love and care for other people, and the, and the things that he ushered in, peace and love, into this world. That's what God had originally intended for this world to look like. See, the problem was is that people saw this way of life from Jesus, and they were like, ah, we don't really like it. We actually like, you know, the powerful like to say, hey, I'm in power. We're in charge. We make the rules. This new kind of government that you're bringing in, this new kingdom, if you will, we don't really like that. Or the, the in crowd, we're saying, we, we don't want more outsiders to come into the in crowd. We kind of like this exclusivity. And so what do they do? Instead of embracing this new way of life, they said, let's kill this guy. And so they killed Jesus. He was betrayed by a friend. He was submitted to an unfair trial, and then he was killed, and then he was buried. And for three days, everybody was like, all right, well, that little fad is over. Whatever he just did, it's over. But then this amazing thing happened, right? Jesus did not stay dead. He was resurrected again. This is, this is what that verse is referencing. The Holy One will not see decay. He did not decay in that tomb. Instead, three days later, He rose again. And what it showed was that the power of the kingdom that He had ushered in, the power, the, the purposes that He had brought to earth, He said, now this is going to live forever, but I'm not going to be the one that's here in physical body on earth. Now you guys are going to go do this. Now you guys are going to be the one that's going to reconcile relationships with others. You guys are going to be the one that's going to have this beautiful self-image of who you are because of my worth that I've placed on you. You guys are going to one that's going to become the stewards and the cultivators of this earth again. You guys are going to be the ones that are going to change healthcare, change governments, change this world, and restore it to what God had originally intended for it to be. Because we have a reconciled relationship with our Father, just like Jesus did, because we have that intimate connection with Him, that's what Jesus Christ brought into this earth. And when we when we as humans say this, Jesus, I want to follow your way. I want to live like that. I want to have that kind of relationship with the Father. When we choose that way of life, Jesus says, okay, then come with me. This is the path of life that I was talking about. This is the path of life that David referenced in Psalm 16. The resurrected life. That's, that's reconciled with God the Father and that's bringing about change here in this world. And what does that do? What is that path of life? So we all have access to that path of life. We all have the ability to make that choice. It's simple. It's just saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I want to walk with you. Jesus, I want to do the things that you did. Help me. Forgive me for my sin and my brokenness and my choices to not live in that connection with God. And Lord, I want to follow the way you did. That's our choice. You have the choice to do that. And here's what then happens when you choose that path of life. Let's continue. It says this, we will have eternal joy in his presence. It doesn't matter our circumstances. We have joy. That is contentment. Then it keeps going and it says this, you're going to have eternal pleasures at your right hand. You don't need to care about all the stuff that you have. 
You don't need to care about like, the, the things that you have here on earth. You have eternal pleasures right at your right hand. doesn't matter what happens in this life. Paul grasped this as he's sitting in jail rejoicing, having nothing. And we all have the ability to grasp this as well by living a life of contentment that Jesus showed us, that Jesus ushered in with his kingdom. So just want to say, if you haven't started following Jesus, if you're out there and you're like, what is he even talking about? What is this path of life? I just want to say, today's the day. It's simple. Jesus, I want to follow you. And if you have been following Jesus, you need to be reminded of this path of life again. I think I need to be reminded of the resurrection every single day. The power, right? Jesus rose from the dead. He has power. And now I have that same power living in me to live my life the way that Jesus lived, to live my life differently, to live my life in contentment. We all have that access. Let's live the Psalm 16 life. So where are we? We're talking about embracing our limits by living a life of contentment. Right? We've got to recognize we have limits. They're God-given, and they're also just good for us to recognize that we have. We can't do everything. That's emotionally healthy. That is spiritually mature to recognize that limits come from God. And now we need to embrace these limits by living the content life. So how do we actually do this? Let's get practical. I got two simple things. First is this. Grab Psalm 16. Make that your meditation this week. Man, as I'm sitting with the Holy Spirit reading it, right? He's illuminating all these things. I believe that He's going to illuminate things to you this week as you read it. He's going to illuminate what it means to be content. What does it mean to live in contentment right now? Meditate on that psalm this week. Grapple with it. Talk about, apart from you, I have no good thing. Yes, Lord, you are my portion, my cup. My lot is secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Absolutely right. The path of life leads me to joy and eternal pleasures. Amen. That's what you meditate on this week. That's going to help you recognize contentment. The second thing is this. It's simple. We've heard it before, but it's thankfulness. Thankfulness is the most practical way that we can recognize and embrace contentment. I have up here 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, and 17. It's a, it's a verse you, maybe if you've, been, if you've heard sermons before, it's been used. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I've heard this before, and I say, that's totally unrealistic, Paul. I can't do that. So why would I then preach on it if I think it's totally unrealistic? Well, here's why. We're given vision for what we want to be at. I'm giving us a high vision for our lives. And, and don't forget that second part of the verse. And this is so powerful. This is a guy named Bill Johnson from a book, Strengthening Yourself in the Lord. It's something that we do a read in ADS and, and the discipleship school. And he talks about uh, how this verse is so key, but you've got to recognize the second part, that it's actually the will of God that we do all these things. Some of us are like, God, what's your will for me? What's my career? What's my, what, what should I do with my life? You know, what's my mission? And those are all good. But do you recognize that these three things are also the will of God for you? To rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. If you're doing those things, you're in the will of God. Praise the Lord. That's easy. You can leave today and do those three things. You can put those things right up on the, you, you know, on the threshold of your door as you leave. And you say, amen, I'm going to pray today. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to give thanks for everything that I have. 
You have the opportunity to do that this week. What does thankfulness do? Two things. One, it reminds us who the giver is. Everything that we have, when we thank God for it, it reminds us, oh man, I got a good dad who's giving me all this stuff. Praise the Lord. Anything that gets our eyes up, that's what we need to do. That's what we need to preach on. That's what we need to be studying. It's getting our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and up on God, right? Second thing, exactly, it shifts our gaze. It lifts our eyes, right? So instead of focusing on ourselves, thankfulness brings our eyes up. Instead of focusing on our lack, it brings us to our abundance, all right? Instead of focusing on all these things that I don't have or all these things or forgetting what you do have, it brings us to remembrance of the things that you do have. That's what thankfulness does. So here's my my call to us. I want you to be people of thankfulness. I want you to be people who lift your gaze. And that's going to usher you into this place of contentment that I believe is promised us on that path of life. So I want... Becky and the band to come up. We're going to move into a time of response. This is simply what we're going to do. I just want to remind us that the whole point of this message is this, embracing our limits. Embracing our limits brings us emotional and spiritual maturity, which is what we're going for as a church. And the way that we do that is by doing it through a life of contentment. And, and the practical way to do that is to be thankful. I gave you that, that, that call to meditate on Psalm 16. So right now, we're going to do this. We have a, one song of worship. And I just want it to be a song of thanks. I want each of you to, to lift your gaze up this whole song. And just start listing out all those areas of your life that you're thankful for. List out every single family member, every single friend. List out your your career. List out the possessions that God has given you. List out your purpose. Hey, this is why God made me. I'm I'm doing this thing. List out these things and just start aligning your your mind with with the good things that you have and start being content with those boundaries that God has given you, these blessings that he's given to each one of us. And the second thing is this. We'll have a few people up here because some of you might be like, man, this is really hard for me, Phil. I have a hard time being content. I have a hard time being thankful. Or I continually kind of, it's like a glass is always half empty kind of pessimistic view of life. If that's you, we, man, we want to pray with you. We want to we aid you in prayer and aid you with that, that perspective that the path of life leads to joy and eternal pleasures. Sometimes it's prayer that shifts our mindset. And so if you need prayer, come and get prayer. So let this song, everybody rise. Everybody stand up right now. And as we sing, each one of you, let it come out of your lips. Sing the song. Also just start listing out those things you're thankful for. And may it launch you into a week of being thankful and content with what God has given to you. So Lord, we just say thank you. We should say thank you for for the things that we have, for the limits that you've given us and blessed us with. We say we want to be a people defined as a people of thanks, defined as a people who, who are content and who embrace our limits.